Good morning, church family. I hope you all are well. I know this uh, season looks differently for for all of us. So some of us are are busier than we were before. Some of us have more free time than we did before. Uh, some of us feel isolated. Um, others just feel overwhelmed. But let's be let's be praying for one another. That no matter where we find ourselves, we will pursue our God together and find encouragement from one another. If you're uh, tuning into this live stream and you're not familiar with Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, welcome. Uh, we'd love to, to meet you and to shake your hand and get some coffee and refreshments with you. That's our custom on Sunday mornings at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. Um, but since uh, the current circumstances hinder us from doing that, uh, we just want to uh, uh, tell you how much we appreciate you tuning in this morning. And uh, we hope that you will reach out. Uh, you can check us out on loudonvalley.org, or you can send us a message here on our Facebook page. Uh, and we would love to reach out to you and to learn how we can pray for you. So thank you so much for tuning in this morning. Church family, we're back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, the plan is uh, that um, uh, we will be uh, posting a short reflection every day uh, as we move through Holy Week in anticipation of Resurrection Sunday. And in lieu of our Wednesday night Bible study that we have on Zoom that we're not going to have this week, we're going to instead have a live stream on Good Friday uh, for a Good Friday service. Uh, and so look for more information about that. Uh, but for this week, we continue on in the Gospel of Luke, and today we come to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. So if you have your Bible, grab it, and let's turn to Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 12 through 19. Luke, the doctor, writes, In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. All right, church, so three ways to structure this passage as we study through it this morning. Three sort of verbs, three action words, three things Jesus is doing in this text. First, in verse 12, we see Jesus prays. Jesus prays. Second, uh, in verses 13 through 16, we see Jesus chooses. Jesus chooses. And then third, in verses 17 through 19, we see that Jesus heals. Jesus heals. So first, let's look at how Jesus prays. Look with me at verse 12. 
And there we read, In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So this isn't the first time uh, that we've seen Jesus sort of retreat, get away by himself to commune with God, his Father. And it won't be the last time we see that. Uh, But have you ever stopped, particularly if you've read this passage before, you've stopped and thought, wait, how, how does this work? I mean, how can Jesus, uh, the second person of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, God the Holy Spirit, how can Jesus pray to God when he is God? Well, so far in Luke, we've seen the answer. We've seen how Jesus has been born as a human being from the Virgin Mary. So he is God, eternal Uh, God from generations past, right? He's a second person of the Godhead with no beginning. He is God, but he is God amazingly taking on flesh with all, all our limitations and all our weaknesses. And so in his humanity, we see that Jesus is greatly dependent on prayer, on God's spirit to both guide him and nourish him. Mark Jones, in his book, Knowing Christ, says it like this. He says, even as the perfect man, Jesus, no doubt, still needed to pray. A robust, reverential, dependent prayer life was suitable and necessary given the various trials and distresses that he faced as the suffering servant. The scriptures certainly give the impression that Jesus' prayer life was as indispensable for him as it is for us. See, church, in this way, Jesus, who is our Savior, is also our example. I mean, if the, if the man Jesus, who never sinned, depended on communion with God and needed time in prayer with his Father, how much more do we, church? How much more do we? You know, in, in this past month, if anything's been made more apparent to me, and I think to all of us, It's that the sense of security and control we can often slide into in our lives is at best an illusion. We often can just go on with our lives. We wake up, we brush our teeth, we go to work, we we clean the house, whatever we're doing. We do our daily routines, often without a thought to the truth that God holds everything we're doing in his hands. And so what this strange season of pandemic has done for us is operated as sort of a a dose of smelling salts, waking us up, stunning us, shocking us back to reality, reminding us of the ever-present simple truth we often forget, that we need God. We need to seek him in prayer. We are not in control, and he is. We must cry out to him for help. If Jesus cried out to God in prayer, how much more should we? How much more should we? So dear Christian, when you are struck with fear about the effects of COVID-19, when you are anxious about the future of your job or your health or your loved ones, when you look at the stock market and fret about your retirement or investments, when you feel bombarded by temptations to get away from it all through lust or greed 
or gluttony during this time of isolation, run to the Lord in prayer. You need him. You need him. It's funny, prayer can feel so unproductive, can't it? It doesn't really check off any boxes. It doesn't really get anything tangible or visible done. But Christian, when you pray, you are actively showing, actively showing that your faith is in the God who acts, who is in control. One pastor has put it this way. He says, prayer is the sound dependence makes. Prayer is the sound dependence makes. So Christian, are, are particularly during this season, are you trusting in God? Are you leaning on him? Or are you still trying to scrounge up enough energy and, and wherewithal to, to control your own life? Are, are you learning better during this season to fall on Jesus? Or are you still trying to grasp that confidence in yourself? Well, look at your prayer life. That will be a good indication where or on whom you are leaning. Christians, spend time in prayer. Uh, little flare, flare shots of prayer throughout the day are good, but take a, take a little tip from Jesus here and set aside large chunks of time in communion with your Father. If Jesus did it, if Jesus pulled an all-nighter in prayer to God, how much more should we? How much more do we need prayer? Jesus prays. Secondly, this morning, Jesus chooses. This is kind of the middle chunk of our passage. It's starting in verse 13, and we read, And when day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So Jesus comes down from this all-night prayer session, and he calls his disciples to him. We don't know how many people are represented in this group that comes to him, Uh, We do know it's more than 12 because he selects 12 from that group. Um, And Jesus' authority is on display here as he both calls them and then chooses and selects from that group. There at the end of verse 13, he calls these 12 apostles. That's a word meaning sent ones. And later in Luke chapter 9, we'll see Jesus sending them out with, quote, power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. These will be Jesus' representatives, bringing his kingdom to bear on the world. And as we work our way through Luke, we'll see more and more about these men, especially some of the, the more famous ones, Peter, James, and John. They'll come up often for us. But for now, we're getting an introduction to them. So let's, let's get introduced. Uh, first of all, there are 12 Have you ever wondered why there are 12? Where else does the number 12 come up in Scripture? Where else does the number 12 play a role in God's redemptive history of his people? It's the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So the 12 tribes were the sons of Jacob, who became known as Israel. God renamed him Israel. And so these were sons of Israel through whom God was going to bring salvation. They were the recipients of promise. And now, Jesus, God's son, the better Israel, is coming and he's selecting 12 men as his disciples. Jesus is the better Israel coming to bring salvation to the whole world. 
So who are these 12? Verse 14. Simon, whom Jesus named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Peter is, is always the first one mentioned whenever the twelve are listed out in the New Testament. He's kind of the ringleader of the disciples. Uh, and we saw back in Luke chapter 5 uh, that he was a fisherman who followed after Jesus. And as you read more uh, into Luke, you'll see Peter go on to confess Jesus as Lord, uh, deny him three times, see him in his resurrection glory. And then as Luke goes into part two in the book of Acts, also written by Luke, uh, we'll see Peter become one of the greatest preachers in the history of the early church. Next is Andrew. He's Peter's brother, also a fisherman. Uh, Then come two other famous disciples, and again, two more fishermen, James and John. So as we put pieces together from the gospel accounts, we see James and John are probably Jesus' cousins. I didn't know that before. Uh, The first one, James, will, you can read about this in Acts chapter 12, will go on to be martyred by Herod. And the second one, John, is known, is, is described in the fourth gospel as the one Jesus loves. James and John. Then comes Philip and Bartholomew. Uh, this Philip, I think, is different than the Philip in Acts uh, that uh, spends time with the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and then there's Bartholomew. Some speculate that Bartholomew was another name for Nathaniel, uh, who's a character we see come up in the Gospel of John. There in verse 15, we get to Matthew. We've already met Matthew back in chapter 5, where he was called Levi, the tax collector. Remember Jesus calling him to follow him and how Levi, Matthew, threw Jesus a party in his house. Pharisees weren't happy about that. Thomas comes next, sometimes called the twin. Uh, We know him. He's most famous for being called Doubting Thomas, uh, doubting that Jesus had really risen from the dead after his resurrection and then putting his hands into the wounds of Jesus and saying, my Lord and my God, that's Thomas. Then after Thomas is a man named James, the son of Alphaeus, And then Simon, the zealot. So we're not completely sure what that title, zealot, meant. It probably meant that Simon was a sort of political nationalist, just passionate about Israel as a nation. And then finally, in verse 16, come two Judases. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who Luke reminds us became a traitor. These are the 12 men Jesus selects to be his closest disciples, the one he will send out as his messengers. And on first glance, they're not much. I mean, several of them are fishermen. Uh, Matthew comes into the group with a background in tax collecting and occupation Jews hated. These are all Jews. Yet Jesus calls this group of men together not because of their resumes. We often see God selecting those who don't look grand in the eyes of the world to be his servants, don't we? This is so we'll recognize the power and glory should go to God alone. So if you turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I love this passage when it comes to who God chooses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers, 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. These are the men Jesus has brought together. And it's interesting to see how Matthew, for one, had a background in tax collecting and being a a support for Rome. And then Simon seems to be a political zealot despising Rome. I I love this this kind of putting together these two men. Uh, Daryl Bach, who's a New Testament scholar, says this. He says, thus, among the, the apostles were a worker for the state, tax collector, and also one who fiercely opposed the state. He says, reconciliation was a product of Jesus's work. Jesus brings these men together in one mission, to know him and then to make him known. And as we read this list of men, what strikes me the most is how it ends. See, we begin with Peter, who though he had his faults, and they're well documented, was faithful to Christ, even unto death. But we end with a man named Judas Iscariot. Iscariot points to the place he was from. Judas was the tool by which Jesus was betrayed, leading to his death. Christian, don't you think it's strange that Jesus would select Judas knowing who he would turn out to be? I mean, Jesus had just had this big prayer session all nighter with God, presumably asking for God's guidance and and seeking his will about how to select the 12, showing his dependence on God. And then he comes down, and it seems like God hasn't answered his prayer because he makes a critical error, or so it seems. He selects a man who will contribute to his death. Is this a mistake? Church, here we see the plan of God moving forward. This is no mistake. God planned all along that Jesus would die for his people. This calling of Judas, far from being a hiccup in God's plan, was actually meant to aid in its fulfillment. So in Acts chapter 2, also written by Luke, uh, we read a sermon preached by Peter in which he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is saying even though Jesus was killed by wicked men, he was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. Jesus was ultimately killed by God. This was God's plan for our salvation. Such is the mercy and grace of our Lord. See, even Judas' deception, even his betrayal, was meant to fulfill God's plan. We see this in the first chapter of Acts. Peter again is speaking. He does a lot of speaking in Acts. And he says, Brothers... 
the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter is saying God actually fulfilled scripture through the sinful act of Judas's betrayal. Church, this selection of Judas Iscariot by Jesus in Luke chapter 6 is no mistake because it sets up Jesus' atoning death in Luke chapter 23. Jesus is not making a mistake. God is not making a mistake. He is in control even over what will be the worst sin in history, the crucifixion of God's son. Dear church, do you see how even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of your sin. You can find comfort as you see once again God's sovereign plan working itself out to the minutest detail for you, for your salvation. If God did this through the worst sin in history, certainly he can work his will for you in the midst of this virus outbreak. Jesus chooses. And then in verse 17, we get to our final point this morning. So Jesus prays, Jesus chooses, finally Jesus heals. Look with me at verse 17. And Jesus came down with them, that is the 12, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. This is sort of a summary statement. Jesus is healing and teaching large crowds of people here in verses 17 through 19 from many different directions. Uh, so Judea here uh, points to sort of the whole Palestinian region. Uh, Jerusalem is, of course, the hub of religious worship, the place where Jesus will go to lay down his life, the place where he will set his face to in Luke chapter 9. The seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, if you look at a map, is kind of on the coast of the Mediterranean, farther north. And why do these people come from near and far to Jesus? Verse 18, to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. We'll see more of Jesus' teaching what they hear, Lord willing, in two weeks when we continue in this passage after Easter. But evidently, Jesus' words, as well as his miracles, attracted people to listen and to hear. There in verse 18, we see that those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured by Jesus. And then in verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him. And healed them all. You get this sort of sense of, of eagerness, of almost like frantic energy as people desperately try to reach and to even touch the man, Jesus. Now this probably shows there's some sort of false, uh, superstitious belief that they were to just touch Jesus, then some sort of magical force would emanate from him and heal them. But even though they didn't have all the facts quite right, they knew there was power with Jesus. This power, we know, was the Spirit of God working through the Son of God for the glory of God. And church, as I read this, I, I think we can, 
better understand the desperation of these people now than we could a month ago. Don't you think? So as we see COVID-19 basically shutting down the United States of America and most of the world, as we see it taking lives, there's a desire we see around us and within our own hearts to see some sort of resolution to this calamity. Uh, People talk about flattening the curve or spreading out the length of this virus. They're talking about some sort of solution Uh, They speak of what's in testing right now. And there's this longing, this expectation for a better day, for for some sort of immunization or drug or something to fight this enemy. In the the midst of our lives then, I I think we can better understand why these people here in Luke chapter 6, oppressed by demons with, with diseases, are coming to Jesus desperately, trying to touch him, to find a cure that they long for so badly. And amazingly, Jesus heals all of them. His power, his power doesn't run out. Church, we know Jesus came to do mighty works. But remember the purpose of his miracles. The purpose of his miracles were not just to make people's lives better, not just to restore some joy to the Jewish people, not just to harness supernatural power for the benefit of finite human beings. No, Jesus came to heal diseases in order to point to a much deeper, greater reality about his mission. Jesus came to heal our sin disease. Jesus came to heal our hearts. Here we see Jesus is a healer, but praise him, he's so much more than just that. Jesus has come to die on a cross, taking the sin of burdened, sin-diseased hearts like yours and mine, being judged in our place by God so we could be cured and made alive to God forever. That's what Jesus' healings here ultimately point to. That he has the power to heal our hearts. To bring restoration to God's people. Salvation to sinners. A new creation. My friend, if you're watching, if you're tuning in this morning and and you don't follow Jesus. You don't ascribe kind of faith and belief to him. As you know Christians do. You haven't repented of your sin and turned your life over to him. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, We wish we could get to know you better, but thank you for being here. Uh, And we are grateful that you're here. But just so you know, the, the Bible says that anyone who is not in Christ, who has not put faith in Christ, is actually dead in sin. Not just sick, but actually unresponsive to God's grace. And so if that's you, friend, if you have not turned your life over to Jesus, the final destination for your dead heart will be eternal separation from God. And that's why Jesus came. He didn't just die to provide us an example of how to love others. 
He died so that if anyone would trust in him and place their sins on him, receiving his salvation, they can be saved. And friend, that can be you today. You will have your eternal destination switched from separation from God to invitation to into God's family. Won't you trust in him today? Trusting in the death he died for you and the life he wants to give you. And church family, I miss seeing your faces as we study God's word together. But I like seeing your, your names pop up a little bit on the screen. But think about this, church. Man, wouldn't it be great if we got off this live stream, we took our Sunday nap or mowed the lawn or whatever we're doing today, and then we just flipped on the news, knowing that we probably shouldn't, because it just gets us down, and we should kind of get me up social media fast. And we saw that some scientists at MIT, along with some doctors at the Mayo Clinic, found a cure for COVID-19. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't we just jump out of our seats with joy? Wouldn't we want to tell everyone we could about this wonderful news? of sickness defeated for the moment and health restored? Church, we know of a cure for a deeper disease, don't we? We know a healer who has died to provide salvation for our souls, health for our hearts. Isn't that great? Isn't that a reason to rejoice? Isn't that something we ought to tell everyone we know? Yes, it is. Christian brother and sister, your Savior has called you, much like he called the apostles. And he sends you, much like he sent his apostles. With what? With the message of his gospel. With the message of reconciliation for anyone who will come. Healing for sin-sick souls. I know right now most of you have had your interaction with the outside world mostly cut off. Co-workers, clients, family members. But that doesn't mean that the calling of Christ on you as a sent one with his gospel is meant to just remain silent for the time being. I mean, we're, we're doing a live stream of a sermon. We're using technology, even though we'd rather be face-to-face. Where can you be creative Where in your life can you tell someone about the cure for the disease of sin this week? Who can you tell about the great healer who has given life to your soul? In one of his sermons, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, When a sinner is bleeding with sin, Jesus pours his own blood into the wound. And when that wound is slow in healing, he binds his own sacrifice about it. Healing for broken hearts comes by the atonement, atonement by substitution, Christ's suffering in our stead. He suffered for everyone who believes in him, and he that believes in him is not condemned and never can be condemned, for the condemnation due to him was laid upon Christ. Spurgeon continues, he says, The sinner then is clear before the bar of justice as well as before the throne of mercy. I remember 
when the Lord put that precious ointment upon my wounded spirit. Nothing ever healed me until I understood that he died in my place instead. Died that I might not die. And now today, my heart would bleed itself to death were it not that I believe that he, his own self, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. With his stripes, we are healed. And with no medicine, but this atoning sacrifice. Oh, church, may, may that message be on our lips, on our fingers as we text or post on social media even during this time of isolation and fear, may the message of the great healer be on our hearts and on our lips to those who are in need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the healer of our souls. God, thank you for sending your son to give his own life for our ransom. Lord, we wish we could uh, finish studying your word with song together. And we can't. But we do finish with a reminder that we are sent into the world, wherever that looks like this week, with the message of this reconciliation. So Lord, lay that on our hearts and help us to have renewed joy in being those who are called and sent with the message of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, that's all for now. Uh, I'm going to get back to my family. Uh, As is the new normal, tonight is our Zoom prayer meeting at 7 p.m. If you need, uh, even if you're a visitor and you'd like an invite into that and the password, please just reach out via Facebook or uh, the emails you'll find on our website. Um, And then this week, remember, we will have no inductive Bible study on Wednesday night, but instead little vignette videos throughout the week and a Good Friday live stream on Friday night. But for now, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Love you all.